out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. I'm with you for the rest of this programme. As you know, we love indie pop from that golden decade. Sometimes before, sometimes after. Also, we love an interview. This week, it is going to be the turn of Sad Lovers and Giants because I spoke to the main man. Indeed, it was Simon Allard quite recently to find out more about life, love, poetry in a world of music and the creative industries. This is the interview and this is where, after a bit of chin-chat and casual conversation, we began by that exciting question, early musical influences. Simon, save this interview. I very much grew up in the, uh, I, I guess I was sort of 70s as I was getting interested in in, in music, and as you're a teenager and you're searching for your identity, music seemed to be an absolute essential part of any sort of uh, identity you chose for yourself in the era I was growing up. So um, I, um, I mean, it sounds laughable at the moment, I, I went to see Slade playing at Empire Pool Wembley, and um, it, um, it sort of made me want to be a, in a band, basically. So uh, they didn't last very long, Slade, I'm pleased to say, although they were quite a good band. Yes. I, I then sort of got into um, the normal prog rock things like Genesis. So I was oh, always into Bowie excellent. and Roxy and, and the bands that were in the charts, the sort of more arty bands, I think it's fair to say. We like um, that. They were in the charts. Because I was just going to say, because I'm sort of born in the mid-60s, so it was the early 70s that I might started to sort of be yeah. keen and interested in the, in the top of the pops. I think before that, I was listening to Radio 2 my, when my mum was in the kitchen, sort of in the work of Burt Bacharach and that kind of yeah. Yeah. soft pop stuff. And um, the, there was an afternoon show with someone who used to have a recipe. I can't remember his name. What's the recipe today? Um, oh, yes. Jim, yeah. <laughs> oh, what was it? Uh, Jimmy Young. What's That's... the recipe today, Jim? I think it was something like that anyway. Yes, that's the one. And and you know, to be honest, it was it was seeing people like Slade and Gary Glitter, obviously. Yeah. Oh, T Rex as well. I mean, there's the, the whole glam rock um, thing was happening. Although it, I think even at that stage, people that sort of like really like their music realised that that was almost that was commercial. It was too commercial, you know. And and they're moving away. And having said that, you couldn't fault Bowie or Roxy Music. I mean, I just, I always loved them. They might have been in the charts, but they always had such style. And I, I talk about art bands, and they were very much well Bowie and um, you know and Brian Ferry and, and Brian Eno. You know, they were they were your typical art. You know, yes, arty farty types. <laughs> but I can remember my first single. Thank God was um, David Bowie's Space Oddity. What was your hmm. first single? I'm just trying to think. I think I bought an album first. The first album I bought was uh, Deep Purple in Rock. When right. I was about 13. But interestingly, because um, you, you mentioned prog rock, I've got a brother who was seven years older than me, and um, I, I sort of I probably worshipped him, and he was my role model, and he was into prog rock. So I, I became keen and I've still have an incredible knowledge of, yes, Genesis, Wishbone Ash. Well, and, um, Genesis is, I mean, Genesis was in the sort of mix of stuff that I was listening to at the time. I, mean, I think Nursery Crime is still an amazing album, and I still listen to it. Um, I'm very much a Peter Gabriel Genesis, I have to say. Oh, God, um, yes. I, I think it was <laughs> absolutely incredible how Collins, you know, Phil Collins' voice sounds so like Peter Gabriel, but they weren't the same band. 
Um, although they did some good stuff, but I, I, I sort of lost interest when he left. Um, other prog rock bands, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I like bands like Stackridge, which you probably won't remember. And um, it was, it was a bit, it wasn't. I wouldn't say it was a phase. It was quite an important phase. But I think then I tried to get into bands, and I couldn't because you had to be a good musician. That, that was the thing. They want, they wanted, good, they want, but, you know, the, there was no argument that they wanted musicianship. And then punk came along, and of course, musicianship wasn't necessary, <laughs> which suited me fine. And it took me a while. I caught on quite quickly to um, to punk because there's something about the anarchic nature of it that uh, really did appeal to me, and the fact that, that you know I could play all the songs without even you know yes. without any trouble. And so I, and my friend said, oh, it's nothing the Stones haven't done. But it, to me, it was so obviously absolutely something the Stones hadn't done. Um, and so I formed a punk band, basically. Um, that was, when would that have been? That was actually quite late in the day. There was, there was that one, which was going on for about 1978-ish. Um, uh, yeah, about for about a year. And then I, uh, then I played in another one. Um, and we we played with the band that was eventually Sad Loves and Giants. They were called the Traumatics then. They were a four-piece band, and we played with them at, at uh, my my old school. Basically, we had a gig in the sixth form common room, and I pl- I played in the other band. Basically, uh, I got to know them from that, and then so we I joined the Traumatics in the late 1970s, and they were sort of a choppy. Post punk is what they were. I mean, the, one of the songs we do now. Fifty Fifty, which has had, I can't remember if it's over a million or two million views on YouTube, is actually a, a quite a very good post-punk song, and it's still played today, and, and we end the set with it quite often. But that was what they were doing. And so we didn't become Saddlers and Giants. I mean, things moved on, you know. It was it was this post-punk, quite high-tempo... Um, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't punk. It definitely had its own sort of... Um, you know, for vibe to it. And then it gradually sort of melded into what is, I suppose, called new, we call it new wave. That could mean anything nowadays, but it was, it was, it was slower. It was more like we, we got a string since, you know, we were listening to bands like Teardrop Explodes, um, The Cure, you know, all this stuff. You know, yes. and the, funny men, the, the ones that are around that time. So, and, and so that's where we found ourselves in the early 80s in in that sort of uh, mix, and that was my journey um, to getting there, really. Yes. And did you? When did you find? Because I always think it's quite an amazing leap. When did you sort of find your voice? Because that's quite something to be. <laughs> that's actually, you know, that is one of the most in, intelligent questions I've ever been asked. When did I find my voice? People always assume if you're in a band, especially if you're a band that's fairly well known, that you've been singing all the time, you know. And, and I have to say. Uh, I didn't think of myself as a singer. I, I tried singing like, you know, Free and bands like that and, you know, Eric Clapton, and I realised very early on that my voice wasn't like that, so I just gave up singing. You know, I, I'd sung in the, the choir at school, so in a, an angelic choir voice sense, I knew I could sing and I, could, I had a good ear. And I, I started doing backing vocals with our, my, one of the punk bands I was in um, before the Dramatics. I was doing backing vocals. Um... Didn't really think anything. I wanted to be a guitarist, really. And then the the Traumatics were looking for a singer. Um, why don't you come along? And I, I actually heard this song, Fifty Fifty. They'd done a demo of it, and I thought, 
well, I, you know, I can't. They'll either like me or they won't. So let's give it a go. So I went along, and actually, they they thought my voice was fine, you know. And from that point on, um, I, I was a vocalist, you know, which was absolutely weird because I was the front man, and that that that's more than a being guitarist. Yes, <laughs> that's that's that one up, you know. So, but I, I mean, I've got to say that that is, I didn't feel very confident about my singing, and a lot of my my lyrical style was based around. Um, trying to, to not feel confident about the, the lyrics I was writing and making them, decoding them and making them so that they were more interesting and somehow, you know, I mean, it's not psychedelic. It was just me not being confident in my lyrics. And I have to say, my the progress as a, as a singer has, it, it, it took a, a huge step forward in the last uh, sort of 15 years when I started singing in, in choirs. I actually decided I wanted to improve my singing and I, I, I have now sung in classical choirs, and I've done all the major, you know, the, the Mozart Requiem, Bart B. Minor Mass, or any major choral work you can name, I have sung. And in the last five years, my voice has, from doing that has really, really improved. Um, I actually sing now, you know. Right. I don't need I don't need four pints to get up on stage and do a sort of rendition of a drunken singer. I can actually sing properly. Um, but so um, that is a long journey, actually. I found my voice my full voice, very recently. Yes. Well, that's quite interesting because because uh, obviously I always think that must be quite a terrifying thing to do, you know, and, and let alone... Because I can remember being at school and, and the sort of the humiliation of, like, right, just stand at the back, you can't sing, and it's like, oh, Christ, that's that's me. <laughs> that's me for the rest of my life. I'm just going to be sort of, like, traumatised yeah. by that experience. So being able to sort of find the voice and sit, stand there and, and entertain mm. the punter is quite something because cause the other thing that I've noticed with, with bands, especially from that that period is that most of have about a most have about a five-year narrative you know and the early yeah. 80s was quite interesting because there was a lot of unemployment so a lot of people were yep. sort of signing on job seekers allowance enterprise allowance was a really big thing that a lot of people were able to do and then have a year kind of being self-employed as whatever but you know a musician yep. would or poet and and that kind of gave a lot of people the opportunity just to focus on music as well as doing yep. all the usual Very thing true. and then you know also they, gave them something to write about Absolutely, you know, material was just there, wasn't it? And then, and then, uh, you know, like uh, getting a single played on John Peel was often the thing that gave him that John Peel session, which again is funny, uh, you know, because there was the the gatekeepers that we had back yeah. in those days, like the NME Melody Maker, the John yeah. Peel show, you know, a, a, any a mention in in one of those publications or play suddenly meant that someone might phone the member of the band and say, "Do you want to come to the Arts Centre on a Tuesday night in a month's time and play?" And people would go, "Yes, yeah. I will be there." Don't worry mate just yep. you know I'll you know from the phone box with two p pieces in your pocket so did did you know because you got the john peel session didn't you in 81 yep. so that must have felt like some sort of blessing from the pope well it, it was i think I, I think that's exactly absolutely right you know um it, everything seemed to be going well with this band we did a sing with the first single i mean it was the diy single era so we had to do a single we realized that and we all chipped in 50 quid and we did the first one and we stuck the sleeves together ourselves you know and the original guitarist um tristan garrell funk he designed it all and uh and that got played on john peel so you know that immediately we were, we were getting airplane a lot of bands were struggling to get airplay and we we were getting airplay but we were only really playing you know sort of watford gigs at the time i think one or two gigs in london and then we did the second um album second uh, single um, 
which was paid for by somebody who who was trying to wanted to manage us and and basically sell us to Warner Brothers with a major deal, um, and we kind of didn't 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 fancy that. We wanted to keep control, so we sort of pulled out, but we still got the recordings which we we bought off her, and and we released the second thing. But we borrowed the money off the bank to do that. And luckily, the John Peel session came along and enabled us to pay the loan off. <laughs> Otherwise, we wouldn't have been able to pay it. But um, and that got us. And then he played that as well. You see, so and at that point, very shortly after, we were off of the John Peel session. So um, I think you know he, he'd, he'd heard he'd heard the, the music. His producer had heard the second single, and and his producer was pushing for it. Um, we never met John Peel. I have to say, yes. although. When he died, his record collection has been catalogued. Every, you can look, go online and look at it. Every single record he's got, you can pull it out virtually on 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 YouTube, and you can see what his sleeve notes were. And our second album is in there, and he's noted on it which two tracks he liked best, which was I think um, you know I think it one was um, was it on another day and in flux were his two favourites, Alice and Giant Song. So he, he you know he, he was aware of us. Um, and you talk about gatekeepers. You say, I, I think that is hugely, hugely important um, compared to the music scene today. I have to say the gatekeepers, the, the major music papers, were very, very slow to pick up on us because we came from Watford and we didn't come from Liverpool or Manchester. I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, I mean, you could say we were limp and derivative, which is what they said about us. But actually, we've always had a slightly different, you know, vibe. We're slightly, we sound slightly different. Um and so we felt very hard done by it. The gatekeepers didn't do as well, apart from John Peel. Yes. Um, and without John Peel, we wouldn't have got all the gigs we got and the, you know, and eventually led to playing abroad where we found a much more appreciative audience. Yes, well, absolutely. Because up to that, you know, I realised that this is the problem a lot of people have now, and I suppose this is what happens when you don't get that kind of play yeah. on, on some sort of national radio or, or publication. We've got a chance now. There's too much background noise. Everybody's releasing stuff. And, yes, you know, this is home true. Home releasing and stuff. And, and, and it just doesn't... There aren't, there aren't any gatekeepers, as far as I can work out. And so you have, to get heard above the background, the white noise of everybody else, is, I just don't know. I mean, we've had, we're lucky, you know, how other bands do it. I don't know nowadays. Well, I guess, having done, you know, I sort of realised that a lot of bands, they've got, I've got another theory, they've got 30 years seems to be a parson of time where, where a lot of the stuff that happened back in the 80s that slightly got mm. sort of ignored, not ignored, but just put, put in the loft and forgotten. You know, yeah. like there was two... Um, uh, books on fanzines from the 80s that came out oh, last right. year and suddenly you thought god i'm sure a few years ago we'd have just put those in the recycling at least yeah, no, but then, now. And now that, yeah you go and then a lot of bands who obviously had that traumatic music experience in music you know as in you probably realize that you have some great highs and then it kind of some slight lows yeah. and then it doesn't end terribly well so you get a day job and then 30 years later you sort of think actually i might play some music again and then realize that things have kind of calmed down a bit and and so Sort of, it's quite good fun, and there's an, an audience of people who'd quite like to see it. And then, yeah. you know, the, the kind of love-hate relationship with people like Spotify means that you have, you know, people who can just kind of pick up your music again. And so there's a yeah. young, sort of younger audience also out there, not just 
people like me sort of waddling around in, in gigs looking looking for their lost youth. So that must be yeah. quite good because I, obviously, you know, because I was saying about my my little five-year thing is, is often the first John Peel session and that first album is, is things are going good it's often the second album and if any band's ever done america they they come back slightly traumatized and think let's let's yeah. let's pretend that never happened and break up so it's it didn't quite go like that that was us david isn't it? um yes the, the i think my son very perceptively said if you'd have made it in the 80s you wouldn't still be going because you'd, you'd have actually done it all but we were always trying to make it right you know up until you know the, the early 90s we were wanting to to, to you know from for 10, nearly 15 years, we, w- we wanted to, to make it, whatever that means. And it, it wasn't really happening in any, you know, uh, major sense. Um, so I, I do agree with you about this sort of thing. I, interesting, a little anecdote on Spotify. I use Spotify and uh, I put in loads of bands I wanted to listen to and it came up with suggested playlist and Sad Lovers and Giants was suggested to me, <laughs> which I thought was quite amusing. So, you know, it kind of worked. But, I mean, I, 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 hear what, I, I hear what you're saying, and I'm not entirely... I think um, we benefited from the, the internet era. I mean, we, we split up in the early 90s, a lot to do with it. We just got tired. Um, we've been hacking around Europe, and, you know, our record company went into liquidation, so we hadn't got a record company anymore. Um, and we just, I think we just got jaded, frankly. So we stopped for, from 92. Uh, I don't think we played again until the early 2000, 2005 or something. I mean, we recorded an album in the meantime, but, but you know, it was, it was not, we weren't going concerned. But, you know, it was the internet age that made us. We, when we picked up again, we started looking at it again, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, we were quite amazed. We were, we'd made more progress in terms of profile in those 10 years we haven't been doing anything than we had in the previous 15 so um i think the, the internet really helped us it, people found us you know by diversity instead of having to play to a a crowd of 50 people up in huddersfield and then do the same the next weekend in manchester immediately you've got a whole world who, who's your audience on the internet um so yes it, that's 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 the secret of our success. Frankly. I know, but then because because obviously the the early eighties was quite an interesting time because it was the, I mean it's a strange term, isn't it? Post punk, you know. But it, there were certain bands before because I think I put indie down between the years of eighty three to eighty seven in a slightly simplistic mm. way, but that's the years of the Smiths, and there was definitely a a thing going on there with you'd had Orange Juice, but then you had all those other bands like the Smiths and the Go Betweens yeah. and the June Brides came along, and it was like the parties yeah. happening. Then eighty seven. The drugs changed to ecstasy and everyone had got bored. And yeah, the yeah. music papers were looking for something else. And it's like, hey, we've got raves and we've got yeah. the Stone Roses and the Happy Mondays and the Soup Dragons have kind of got a good sound. And, and suddenly everyone was kind of dancing off their face. And then, you know, that so that that kind of because of quite a few people like the primitives. I always, you know, like yeah. ask them, you know, why they stopped. And it's like, well, actually, no one was interested. And the same with the Mighty Lemon Drops. Again, it was like, well, yeah. we couldn't even get mentioned in a music paper anymore. Yeah. And, and not only that, you know, the fans had also, you know, had sort of gone into, I don't know, I suppose adulthood, hadn't they? You know, you get relationships yep. and get a home and suddenly you can't sort of worry about the latest Mighty Lemon Drops album, which is a shame because it was probably, mm. the, by the sixth album, you probably thought, I just need the best of now, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> so did you? No, it, it, it is true. And, and I think you, you do have to have a, you have to somehow find a new audience. I think your old audience are always there. I mean, I think... Um, 
if you there's a the, the whole 80s revival thing. I mean, I thought it was mad when I first sort of like we first heard about it. It's just got bigger and bigger and bigger, um, and I don't think it's going away. I don't think it's. Um, I think there's something in t- there's artistic of artistic merit in the 80s. There's something about it. People are quite discerning. Um, anyway, sorry, I took you off your point. What was your <laughs> what was your point? <laughs> what was my yeah? So like so 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 about eighty three. You'd done a huge amount. You'd done two albums, done lots of touring, and yeah. the John Peel session. And then did you? And then your music was it the the label that you had problems with? No, well, no, that was the first time we split that time because we really, really were going for it at that time. We literally. We were playing, we did in one year, considering we all worked by one of us, one of us did looked after the records, the keyboard player, and and he didn't work. The rest of us all had day jobs. And in, in that one year after the first album came out, which was March 82, I think, um, in that one following year, we did a gig, a weekend in the UK, driving all around, so as well as working, and recorded a second album. So we were absolutely knackered, frankly. Yes. Um, I mean, it, it's difficult to just say, well, why didn't you give up your data? Well, I think that's a good question. It never got to the stage where we felt anyone was remotely interested in us except John Peel. And it was just faith in ourselves that kept us going and kept us you know, staggering on. Then we did the second album. We, went up, we got our first gigs in Holland. We played, um, we did a session for... Radio Hilverston in in Holland, which is a bit like the John Peel thing, and and that got us a lot more exposure in Europe. So we did these three gigs in um, in in Holland. Then we came back, finished the second album, and then the summer we toured Holland and Germany, which is I can't remember, it was about sort of eight or nine gigs, I think. And then again, we got to the end of it. We were completely knackered. Nobody was interested. We got some shitty little reviews from would-be journalists in Melody Maker and stuff like that, saying, oh, they've listened to the Banshees, they've listened to The Cure, they've thrown away the good bits and used the rest. You know, great, it trips off the tongue, ha, ha, ha. But, you know, for us, <laughs> I mean, it wasn't it wasn't entirely true either, but it, they, I can see what he's getting at. But you see, then these gatekeepers then become, the, the gate is shut, you know. Yes. So for us, it didn't, it just didn't, you know, it wasn't it wasn't happening. So we we did get offered a, a TV shot on uh, slot on um, used to be the Oxford Road Show, I think it was. Oh on, yes, on, on, that's um, a classic. So we got uh, we got a single off the second album played on um, what was it daytime daytime radio one daytime. So you know, but we 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 just split up, so we we weren't about to reform. Yes, um, and I then sort of went into. Um, family mode I decided okay my, to my wife right, we'll, have, we'll start the family now so we we've rapidly started a family and then about a year later I suddenly woke up and missed the band so um, meanwhile our guitarist had gone off and formed a band called Snake Core which is actually very good um, and had a lot of success subsequently that's um, and I recruited uh, well the drummer and I and, and the bass player we were still sort of jamming around like, you know writing stuff and Meeting up for a pint, and um, and then we we decided to put an advert in Melody Maker for a guitarist, and we got Tony McGuinness, who is our current guitarist. This was mid eighties, and and we did some more demos, and then we played it to Midnight Music, who had been the the record company for Saddle and Giants, and they said this is actually really rather good. 
we'd like to sign you, but we're only going to sign you if you call yourself Sad Lovers and Giants, basically, because there'd been a lot of interest in the band sort of building, percolating. And so, so that's what we did. So that, so that was the Mirror Test album, was the third album. I think that came about 1986 or seven. And then we did another album after that, Headland. And then a spin-off of that one was uh, Treehouse Poetry, which was in the same sessions. And that took us to the 19... That took us to the ni- 1990s, and that's when the band started. That's, yes. that's when the label split up that time. So we had a split up before, after the second album, then we had a split up in the 90s. Um, so with the... Because Midnight Music, I think that was the label that... Um, God, there was a lot of indie bands on there, but there was the Blythe Power, I think, was on Midnight Music. Oh, I love Blythe Power. I know, oh, did. my word. Amazing band. They're just singing... It's a drummer. Yes. And we've just got this real folk sort of ethic... Um, Better to bat than to bowl is one of their tracks. <laughs> it's, just, it's just so charming. I don't, Blythe Power is a steam engine, apparently. I mean, I loved them. I thought they were fantastic. Yes, he's a train... Uh, they're he's probably a tra- still going. He, oh, God, yeah, he's a train spotter, actually. That's why he... he, he <laughs> he's a greiser, I think. He, he travels around. Uh, he does I've love never it. I've met him. So, um, yes, Joe, I did an interview with him, and he's just a really delightful guy. But he, it was quite interesting without, you know, sort of going too diverse. But he did say that, that his lesson in life was that... And it took him decades to learn this was to not be so democratic in the band, but to make a decision. Oh, and don't get me onto that. <laughs> he, you know, <laughs> but he said it did take him literally decades before he sort of realised actually I'm Blythe Power and these are my songs yeah. and I'm not going to share them with the guitarists who did absolutely nothing on them. So um, that's the end of that. But he, you know, so now he he rules rules it. But you know, it's a bit a bit like the party. Well, no, we are. We, to be honest, David. I, I mean, I do agree with him up to a point, And but I, I think as a band, Sad Love and Giants have, have got more democratic, more democratic actually. Um, we we don't we we know we we kind of move to a point where we all have our own little way of contributing songwriting wise. Um, and you know we split everything. You know, there's no there's no competition about you know whose name goes on what. It's all but saddles and giants so split five ways. So that, that's great. Takes a, a lot of the sort of like any competitive element out of it. But we actually value each other's songwriting abilities. For, you know, for, for, in different ways. Um, and so although, for example, I will write lyrics. I, I generally I write all the lyrics. There's no doubt about that. But if they don't like it. I don't say tough, I'm the lyric writer, you know, I'm going to be autocratic about it. I actually will try and, and write stuff that they like. Um, and they quite usually have a good point about it. Uh, I've never, there's a sort of respect though that they won't pick up the pen and just cross out my lyrics and, and then write their own and say, no, sorry, guys, this is what we want, you're not having that. But it, it, and Tony again is very much the production. He, he is quality control. Right. I mean, it's, what, it's what he does for his day job anyway. So he's, but he's quality control. Um, he's probably the best musician out of all of us. Um, and so we, we kind of, he gets to say more on that. Although we can we can all discuss and, and we have discuss it. I think at the end of the day, if we had a disagreement then on music, for example, Tony would then decide. And if it was on lyrics, um, I would probably decide. So yes. but there's, it's quite democratic, actually. You'd be surprised. It does work. Yes, because I did see that documentary, and we have people of a certain age love BBC Four on a Friday night. But there was the one about bands reform, and there was the there was a clip with sort of 
the police and when they got back together obviously they they got to that point where there was a huge amount of money and everyone enjoyed it apart from the two two of the members the drummer um and sting and eventually they had they had to have band therapy and then sort of talk 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 it out because otherwise it just wasn't going to happen but there was like millions in you know in um you know involved with this you know and lots of people thinking please just get on because you know we could all make a lot of money and they they realized that as well so they they did did you ever have that kind of feeling that you're looking back at the band that you wish you'd had band therapy and sort of or was <laughs> I don't think it would have helped and you, you know we actually I mean I have to say it, they're my friends I mean uh, this is going to sound very uh, this is the secret of our success actually we are actually friends we, uh, we have a great time when we go abroad it's not it's not a natural fit it's taken years and years and years we suddenly look at these people and you think god you know I've known you for 35 years and I still want to be in a band with you, so you must be my friend. <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind of. I don't think we, we, I don't think band therapy would have helped. And the other thing is, there's not a lot of money in it for us. There's nothing. I mean, it's getting more playing live. We're in demand, um, you know. But there's not. It's not like the police where there's. It's a big commercial um, deal. I, interesting. I, saw, I read something about the House of Love um, and the singer. I can't, is it Chad? One of oh. Chad yeah, Chadwick and Bickers, isn't it? Yes. And they just can't be bothered to argue anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that's so mature, you know. And I think they're touring America next. Yes, uh, next this year, year this year. Yes, yeah, I, you know, and I thought, I thought, you know, at the end of it, you just can't be asked to, you know, get all this pits of artistic temperament and oh, I want five percent more royalties for this than you. You know, blah, blah, I wrote this. this the tambourine in that sort of thing. It's it just it's actually just nice to be doing it still, you know, and it, and it being enjoyable. Um, so I don't think band therapy was necessary for us. We yes. worked it out ourselves. Which is which is kind of probably a cheaper way of doing it as well. But there was that, there was also that amazing documentary with Metallica where they had some a therapist for the lead singer, and then he started to contribute to the to the ideas of what the album should sound like. It's it I saw it on Netflix. It was quite boggling, and you thought it, it was a bit Spinal Tap, but it was kind of real because he they had to have a chat and say, look, the therapist yeah. he can't be in part of the recording process. But he'd sort of gone between being a therapist to being like, can we yeah. contribute? Can I contribute something to the did he, did he get a qu- credit on the albums as therapy? Well, I, uh, <laughs> well it was Yoko close. Ono gone a step further, isn't it, really? Yes, and it was a bit creepy, and he, he was like, you know, a real cliched American sort of type of therapist who was there for the lead singer who was constantly having problems. I mean, when you sort of looked at your own creative kind of journey, did you, when you look at people like, and, and sort of trying to make music to people, keep the band together as well as kind of create an audience when you look at the work of people like David Bowie did you sort of do you sort of find that kind of boggling that during the 70s because obviously you were saying the 80s you know you had three years of really sort of pushing for it and eventually think oh god having a break and then coming back again but with Bowie in the sort of 70s he released an album a year he did two or three big tours relocated produced a few other albums for Lou Reed and uh, Iggy Pop I mean did you, and then he made Low, which was kind of boggling. Did you ever, when you look back at you know your your sort of progression, do you ever sort of think, oh yeah, that that would have been an interesting move? Well, to have done it like that. Well, just kind of you know, just when because at the time when you're creating stuff and trying to work out what to do next, do you ever feel that you wished you had been braver at times? And and uh, you, you, there's a there's a huge topic of discussion um, around. Around that, I'm, I'm going to actually have a go at it because you can always cut me off if you don't like it. <laughs> I mean, the, the, 
what's, what's the album Barry album Joe the Lion's on? Joe is the Lion um, is, um, I think that was Hero, is the one with... From the, Heroes, yeah. Now, yes. Tony Visconti uh, um, produced that album. And I've read interviews with Tony Visconti, and apparently Joe the Lion was the only song on that album that was even slightly worked out when he went to Berlin to record it. Now, so he had basically had a bank... I mean, don't get me wrong, I think that is the best Barry album. I love Low. It's different again. Um, but he had the resources to be able to do that. We were always, you know, we were always you know, stuffed in a studio and we, we didn't get Tony Visconti doing the engineering. <laughs> and, I, and also, I, I don't think we've ever been... Bowie was always pushing the envelope. Everything he did, right from, you know, the first memory of a free festival and all that stuff and you know, his early, early... He, he was always looking to do it different, do something different. And that was part of what he was. I, I don't want to put us down, but what we do is write nice melodic songs. You know, that is our, that is our thing, our stick. You know, it's, it's, we write nice melodic songs. So for us, we actually, we're just looking to write another, the perfect melodic song. I mean, I, I, I can't describe it. It's, it's like, you can go out there and you can say, right, everybody in the band is going to play a different instrument for the next tour, you know. Yes. Fantastic. But that has not been our thing. Our thing is we're still trying to write that perfect song that's going to change the world. You know, every time I pick up my guitar and I write, try and write a song, and I play the guitar badly, I have to say, um, I want to write a song that's going to change the world. I'm not looking to, to change what we do and present another aspect of ourselves. And so we've sort of gone into ourselves in many ways, and we're still writing songs. We will talk. Tony and I will exchange emails, sort of ludicrously long emails, about what it takes to write the perfect lyric. You yes. know, and, what, and we analyse it. You know, we're, you know, it's quite... Um, so I, I, I don't think that would have ever worked for us. Um, it's, not, it's not what we're about. Um, and I, but I, I admire it. I admire Barry's creativity. Yes. Um, he never stopped. I mean, Tin Drum was awful. Um, <laughs> you know, there was some, there's some, some absolutely. I mean, but if you were to take my top, I don't know, top fifty songs, there's probably fifteen that will be Bowie songs in there, and one mm. or two of them would be ones that he produced, like Lou Reed's um, "Walk on the Wild Side" is one of my favourite favourite ones. Mm. He produced that, so. Yeah, I mean, amazing man, but not Silence and Giants. No, but um, yes, I suppose it was quite interesting because, because having you know that, that sort of the first love with you know being Bowie with Space Oddity and then but getting mm. Changes One, which was the album, you know, you, you know, sort of then going back and looking at his career, realizing the stuff he did in the sixties was pretty dreadful. The seventies, amazing eighties, and it was interesting that the people who had done something before the eighties, like mm. you know Bowie. I don't know, just like, um, is it Robert Plant? I, I mean, yeah. I hate to say Rod Stewart in there, but but I know they're, 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 they could, rather than sort of being on the zeitgeist, they were following mm. the scene and their 80s work is like, God, it sounds awful, you know, and I think most of them yeah. would say, yeah, yeah. can we just skip the 80s and, and you know, because we all got lost there. So it's interesting, you know, bands who were there at the time, you know, like the Smiths and the Echo and the yep. Bunny Men and yourselves, you know, you were able to, you know, you were there on the zeitgeist of what you were doing rather than, shit, what do we do now and what do people yep. want? So you had that Trevor Horn production sound, I suppose, yep. that a lot of those people decided to buy into, which was kind of an odd move yep. because in a yep. way it's like suddenly they're following something and trying to yeah, work out. Yeah. And then, you know, and obviously I think with Bowie, the Tim Machine was his kind of way of just saying, 
you know, I just need to, I don't know. Yeah, Tin Machine was not Tin Drum, that was uh, Japan, wasn't it? Yeah, that was, <laughs> yes, that's right, the Tin Machine. And then, you know, eventually he kind of worked that out and sort of got it. And I just wondered, with yourself, you've, you know, you've stuck really with music all your life. So, mm. so in a way, you know, and you, you were saying at the beginning, you were sort of been in a choir for the last 15 years or 15 years ago, mm. and you started to find your voice. So obviously you, you haven't sort of sat back and just said, we're just going to play down the pub in front of 15 people. And, I couldn't and, do it. And, and, <laughs> and, just, and just played the greatest hits from that first couple of albums. You know, yeah. it's like, so you have actually continued to, to work your creative process, haven't you? to our creative process this is this is i mean the thing a lot of bands that reform we talked about bands that reform from the 80s and they become a tribute band act to themselves you know that, that's what they're about um you know I, i'm not going to name bands because i they probably they'd probably you know shoot me for saying <laughs> but they're, they're tribute they're, they become a tribute band for themselves they're not writing any decent new new material um and yes, they, some of them have had more success than us, and so you can understand if the audience is going to turn up to see them. That um, you know, my, that noise in the background is my terrier who's trying to get a bit of old sandwich out of the bin under my desk. <laughs> um, the, the, so, so you can understand why they would do it, but for us, it would never work unless we're writing new material, and that new material has to, to meet the sale of the giants. It has to be sale of the giants material and good sale of the giants material. It's not. It's not. It's not acceptable for us to just not write stuff or to or to, or to come up with or just to put our substandard stuff. It, it, if, it, if we're putting it out, we think it's good, and that is what it's about. Yes, and and as you've sort of um, and actually Robert Lloyd from the Nightingales is one of those characters who've constantly tried to. Um, do new stuff and is always you know on seems to be constantly on tour actually as well which is quite amazing so with your you know audience and you've been playing live quite a yep. bit in the last year have you have you found that you've got kind of like wow that's a, quite a different or you know younger members yes. and and sort of also yeah i just was wondering. it varies from country to country um greece uh, it, we, we've got a big uh, fan base in greece we played um in athens um Earlier last year, and we, it was a two. It was a two, um, two nights in the same club. Um, the first night, there were only about you know, well, only he says, having played to eight people at Huddersfield Polytechnic in 1983, um, there were only 450 people on the first night. The next night, there was another 700, and they couldn't get into the club. And I looked at them, and I couldn't see one single anorakt man in the entire audience. The demographic was very much mid-twenties, female, student type. I mean, I'm, I'm making a bit of a that's not exactly yes. <laughs> focus group stuff, you know, but I, I actually... And so there's a new audience from, there, from somewhere. I don't know where. I talk about the, the, the older Anorak man. I mean, I'm, I have no... You know, there's nothing wrong with our old fans as well. We love to see them when they turn up. Um, but there is a new audience there. Now, when we play in America, it's a different... Um, it's a different thing. Again, I think when we played in America, there's a huge interest in 1980s bands. And for some reason, it, for them, they don't really understand the difference between Manchester and Liverpool and Neck and the Bunny. I mean, we're just a British band. And we've always, I suspect, had a, a strong market over there. It's just we've never been able to get there. Um, so I think we we'd have benefited from the 80s thing. And there's no doubt about it. And I... I I just, I just think if it, I mean, actually, if it was just the same people turning up that turned up in 
We do get that a bit. We played at um, the Milky Way Club in Amsterdam last year, and there was a, a large number of people that were there the first time we played there in 1983 or whatever it was. So, but I mean, generally, it's it's there's a there is a young audience out there, and we do seem to be connecting with them. Yes, but also, I mean, it's quite interesting because Spotify. Um, you know, you do have a monthly listening, uh, listenership, which is much bigger than Mighty Mighty, I have to say, which is 50, yeah. <laughs> 50, 57. And look, actually, no, it's, it's, it is quite strange. It's selective songs, you know. The, the one that off the second signal, single, um, Things Never Did, has exceeded three million, um, you know, hits on YouTube. I mean, I, it's just, it's been on there a while, mind you, but it's quite respectable. Yes, well, it's, it's quite unbelievable. You know, it's phenomenal. And also, because the one thing that I did notice, and you've probably also seen, is that everyone loves to have a film. Not everyone. But, you know, there was The Wedding Present had a film recently mm. on George Best, that album. And then The mm. Chills have got one. The Go-Betweens have had one. L7, mm. The Slits. I mean, you, you also did your book as well, didn't you? You published an autobiography of the band. I did, but I mean, I mean I've got to be say that book is, is a bit like gas therapy. I mean, it, I probably shouldn't have done it. <laughs> I mean, I, it was, I mean, can you think of anyone else that's thinking, do I need to continue my, in my band? I know, I'll write a book about it. No, so that's what I did. Um, so I don't think it's, and you know, the thing, I have regrets about that book. I was very, I'm, I'm quite proud of it in some ways because it was a very, my daughter read it and uh, she didn't want to read it because she thought she was going to find out all sorts of things I'd done in the past that she'd be embarrassed or cringe about. And she said, well, actually, I couldn't put it down. You know, she said, I actually really wanted to get the end. It, it, it actually read very well. Um, so I was quite proud of that. And it, it's very well designed uh, by my friend Simon. He, he, um, he did a really good job. It looked good. Um, but do you know what? We've done so much more after that book. We were touring around, we did South by Southwest, we've done some bigger gigs, we're going back to America this coming um, autumn to play in a festival in Oakland, and then we're playing in LA again um, the day after that and done, doing another um, radio session for Michael Stock, the legendary part-time punks DJ in Los Angeles. So, you know, I actually think it's just not the full story anymore. So I'm not going to re reprint it. I think what we need to do is, is do another one for the whole band, an official one, with the same sort of pictures and stuff in it. Because I don't think I'm the same person, the, the, the sort of slightly in a dilemma, should we continue, should I continue, should I not, sort of thing that I was when I wrote the book. Yes. Um, I think it's nice to have. I think, it, I think it's, it's, a, it's got some great pictures in there, because I, I went around all the band and raided their photograph albums and stuff. But um, it's not the complete story. So, so when you did it, did you, were you sort of feeling like you were signing off, so to speak, you, in a sort of existential angst of thinking, I just want to sign it, put it down, you know, and then, I don't know, whatever... Um, yes, but, but was well, that kind? Of, did that feel like the end of the band and, and your way? No, of I don't know. I'm in a permanent state of existential angst, actually, David. I always have been. That's the source of all my, uh, my lyrical inspiration. Um, no, I, I wasn't. Uh, I just sort of, I don't know. I just thought we're doing. We're still doing this, you know. We're still plodding around these gigs, and you know, and uh, we're not plodding because the audiences were getting bigger. But I just had to ask myself, you know, I'm, I'm sort of approaching 60 why am why am i still why am i still doing it was the question i asked and i kind of answered it during the book that you know if you can do it why cut your nose off to spite your face and so job done we could argue we say why put the book out yeah. <laughs> but but i you know at the time i i just i thought it you know it, it was an interesting i thought we were interested in it i mean not sure that everybody needs to know you know the inner workings of my mind you know and what therapy i'm having at the time and 
Um, you know, and I just, but I do think that it's, um, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of it. I just think it's, um, I don't know. There's been so much more since then. Well, it's, um, yes, because often you get, I don't know why, but um, the band often gets kind of not lumbered, but sort of put in the same category as the uh, the chameleons. And I know Mark Burgess did a book as well, and and I'm sure that when he did it, he probably thought the band was over, and then suddenly the chameleons are still <laughs> still doing oh, very it much, yeah. very much, you know. And he's probably more inspired to do to record new material and and sort of do more work than, you know, probably thought, oh, God, that isn't the end at all, actually. That was just a sort of slight breather before I kind of went on and done something mm. else. So it's kind of, I suppose it's kind of interesting. I suppose it's a way of processing. And also you, yes, the other thing that a lot of people do, you know, like I know Jim Bob from the Carter, the Unstoppable Sex Machine, another band called yeah. Bob, was that um, everyone loves to get their archives and get them all sorted, you know, to go up the yeah. attic and get, at the, get all that done. So have you gone back and sort of got all the, everything that the, the band have ever done and sort of got it nicely sort of labelled and um, processed? Well, it's not quite like the Natural History Museum. Um, it, it's all, it is in, it's, I, I mean, I went through to try and put together a, a list of the uh, the gigs for that book I had to go I had to do quite a bit of research and then after of course I put it put it out I found out quite, some of them were wrong um, so I don't we don't have a methodical um, kind of cataloging archiving system um, and, and I, I've lost stuff as well I moved house and my mother and oh, poor mother-in-law yes. she took two black black bin bags which she thought was rubbish and put them out for for the dustman and they contained all our early memorabilia uh, which was <laughs> not her fault but it, it seemed I, I feel it was a great loss because I had loads of stuff in it I don't know I um, I think we kind of how important is you know, I had this decision the other day was I going to throw some posters away and you know, I'd, I'd, if somebody wanted them, I'd give them to them. We, we we sold quite a lot of them to get to go to America the first time. We did a, um, a pledge campaign and, um, and sold off a lot of old albums and signed stuff to raise the money to, you know, part of the money, not all of it, to go. Um, so they, uh, they have a use. So I, I don't, I'm not very, um, I'm not terribly nostalgic. I don't sort of live in, I want to, it's, what, it's the next project is what I want to do. I do have moments when I look back on them, things and I, you know, I kind of, I've got some posters up in my studio at home, and you know, but I'm not wanting to dwell. I'm much more interested in the latest song we've got, and we have got some cracking new songs we're working on at the moment, which just fire me with enthusiasm. So I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not crying about yes. you know, losing some posters from 1982. So your the album Mission Creed that brought came out two years ago. How long yeah. did that take to both record uh, to write and then record? Was that because there was quite you know a huge gap between that and your previous album. So I just wondered if yeah. if, if that was something that the, that um, it kind of grew organically, or whether you thought no, we're going to put an album out next year. Well, let's get working. It, 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 well, we, we sort of reformed in two thousand ten. We got Will, our current keyboard player, so we actually became five permanent members without using session musicians in two thousand ten. And as soon as we started rehearsing as a full band, we, I mean, we just write more stuff. So we were producing new albums, uh, new songs rather, and um, new songs, and doing, we do demo. We've all got home studios, so we can we can do a demo, knock up a demo, and these things are kicking around, and we were playing them live. So we had a sort of filtering system um, when we were playing them live, see how they go down. So there was new stuff we were playing all the time from 2010. Uh, we, but it really, I mean, the, the problem is, you know, actually 
producing an album, you, you want to, you could pay a lot of money going to the studio and have somebody do it for you. I mean, we didn't really want to do that because you never get what you want. We, we'd much rather do it ourselves, essentially. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it is difficult. So I think we got to the point where we got we got enough songs for the album. We needed to put it out. And as you know, Tony McGuinness is he's a professional record producer. Um, it's not quite as cut and dry as old Tony's in the band. We use his studio. You know, it doesn't work like that. Um, but he effectively produced the album. We all contributed to the production, um, but he effectively um, worked it out. How you know? We, there's things about the other. <laughs> I don't want to give too much away, but what I would say is the recordings in the 1980s have a charm, but they are not of the quality um, of the recordings you get. That, that what is expected of a, of a commercial recording release, um, you know, in the current era. And we have absolutely no interest in producing something that is of the recording quality of the 1980s. So we had a double we had a double thing here. We had to actually produce a convincing album that Saddles and Giants fans will say, "Oh yeah, that's Saddles and Giants." But we also had to do it to, you know, 2017 or whatever it was production standards. So we actually took a lot of time about this. We did in, we did involve, um, you know, professional record producer to, to get an idea on three songs that what what would work and then we worked out how to do it ourselves um and all of it is ourselves we've it's on you know our boy camp label is is basically tony's label um and um you know the artwork is done by an ex-member of the band and and we we've self-released it effectively yes. so Actually, it wasn't there were some uh, some technical details now what i would say about that is having done it once it's going to be a lot quicker to get the next one out. Excellent. Actually, uh, Simon, could I just quickly... I just need yes. to open the door, but I'll be back in literally a second. No problem. God, sorry about that. <laughs> One of those things. Yeah, so you were saying, have you, yes, the next album. So that was the production. And then did you say the, yes, so you've got kind of a mission, not the mission, but yes, you've got the next album sort of kind of lined up. It, it's half, we've written, um, it's come on in leaps and bounds actually in the last six months. It, we've, we've actually uh, got half of it already. Um, we've got other, say, <laughs> Not not in final recorded version, but we've got some very solid, well, well, not just our bedroom demos, but actually decent quality demos, um, which are sounding very good already. And we, we will start playing them. Um, our next, um, we've got a, a break now because um, we've got band members with other commitments. Um, and September we go over to America again and... Um, and we will be playing some of the new stuff there. I mean, I'm, I don't think the, the album will be out by then because we just don't do things, I don't know, we take a time over it. It might be. It could yes. be. Um, but it, it does, there's no sort of, oh, we're going to America, we must have the album out by then. If it doesn't, if it's not right, we'll go anyway, you know, and it's not, it's not, I don't think we work in a sort of 
traditional sort of record company, you know, pressured release dates sort of thing. You know, we the night Mission Creek, we we got the album to the point where we knew it was going to happen, and then we decided oh, we'll have some gigs to promote it. So we had a a flurry of gigs over the next um, you know ten twelve months, and and then we go into hibernation a bit again, and and it kind of works. That it works for us. We never get bored with it. You know, it's always something. It's interesting. Yes, absolutely. And what would you, I mean, just kind of lastly, what would you say to an 18-year-old self? You know, like that bit of knowledge or wisdom that you think, oh, God, that would have been such a good thing if I just had that kind of put in my, you know, someone had just um, whispered that, you know. You know, what I, wouldn't, you, I, would, I wouldn't, I'd say just keep doing the same thing you do. Just, just don't doubt yourself at times as much as you have done. Um, you know, you are the front man, you are a front man, you, you can sing. You know, you can write stuff. Just do it. You know, don't don't have any doubts about it. Um, don't I? You know, don't I? Wouldn't I'd say to my eighteen year old self, don't 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 start wanting to go down the major label route because it just wouldn't it wouldn't work. You know, I thought for many years that's what we should be do should be signed to major labels. I mean, um, you know, and I know that's wrong. It, we'd never have, we'd never have survived. You know, we have to have the freedom of um, you know being able to just make decisions. You know, sometimes not to commercial deadlines. You know, it doesn't work for us otherwise. We'd have been a nightmare on a major label. Um, yes. But it works for us the way we do it, you know. And, and the more we don't do, the more there's always... The demand seems to sort of build up for us to do something, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a virtuous circle, not necessarily of our own creating, you know. We, you know, the, the, say the 1990s when we did nothing, we came back and suddenly found that it was our the year, the decade of most growth. We hadn't done anything, you know. It's, it's a bit, we must have something, I think. Yes, I do think we've got something, you know. Well, it's amazing how that that's developed and and sort of grown so much, and and you haven't gone down that uh, what is the the shine weekends, you know, those kind of eighties yeah. nights, yeah. which is yeah. kind of you know I think it's good, but I suppose I don't I don't know. It's a weird one, is it? Because it's kind of the nostalgia circuit, which is always a bit tricky. Really, it's kind of both good and bad. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I agree. I think it is good. And bad. I will say one thing that you know, I you can't. And history is a very strange thing. You can't rewrite it. But um, we played, we resurrected our, our third single, "Lost in the Moment," not so long ago. And somebody said, "Oh, it's just like the Smiths." And then we pointed out we actually released it the year before the Smiths. And then there was a little debate going online, I saw um, people that saying, yeah, but the thing is, uh, the Smiths have got Morrissey, whereas, um, you know, Johnny Marr, okay, yeah, he could play in Sad Lovers and Giants, but, you know, they, they still haven't got Morrissey. Um, but, I think, you know, actually, we were right, we were right in there. Um, you know, yes, we haven't got Morrissey, we've got Garth. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not about to apologise, but, but I, I think the point I'm making is that the his, history has gone down that the Smiths were an amazing band. Yes, Morris has spoiled it a bit with his racist comments and stuff. <laughs> but they, they were an amazing band, but we were doing stuff that was actually in that neck of the woods before they were, before Hand in Glove was ever bloody released. Um, I'm quite proud of that fact, frankly. Yes, well, absolutely. No, it's fantastic. And and for us fans, I mean, you know, at the time you just kind of breezily go to see these gigs for £2.50p and then you sort of got the singles and listened to it on John Peel and took it all for granted. And then, you know, then 
it's like as a fan, you know, give it a few decades and then you start listening to the music again without feeling yeah. like you just want to relive your youth because that would be a, yeah. a weird thought. But thinking, actually, the music is really amazing. You know, there, there was there was a lot more, you know, like the depth of it, you know, like, like I said, listen to certain bands and certain, you know, Actually, yeah. most of them, you know, because actually, I'll be honest, I wasn't really into the goth scene at all, so I kind of ignored all those bands. And then I've slowly listened to them recently without having to sort of feel so kind of, I don't like goth, and thought, actually, they're really good, actually. There's yeah, there's, really... one of, there's, there's some gems in there, I must admit. There are some gems, but there is sometimes, you know, the fashion yeah, at the time. Yeah, there's But so, uh, I think the history is actually, we were described as legendary the other day by some, in some um, review I, I read, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. We weren't legendary at the time, but obviously if you keep going long enough, then people consider you to be legendary. So that, I'm not complaining about that. That's probably ju totally justified as far as I'm concerned. Yes, well, absolutely. And as, as you said, you know, you've, you're, you know, things haven't worked out that well with the Smiths and their legacy now, but at least with your band, it's, it's looking better every day. And that's Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, David. <laughs> I've really enjoyed talking to you. It's nice. To, I know. I don't know what. I'd like to know what you include in your your final, um, you know, show. But it's been great fun talking to you, and I've enjoyed. You know, thinking about the what I'm going to say. Frankly, it's it's been a good process. So, thank you very much, David. Yeah. Send me what send me what actually goes out. I'll be really really. I will. Really interested. Okay then. Thank you ever right. so much, there. Take have care. A, you too. See you later. Bye. Bye. Bye.